Science fiction has informed us about the future of human space exploration. If you watch any movie, TV show, it tells you about how we're going to be hopping on our starships, flying to other stars, living in space, enjoying all of the freedom and excitement uh, that only a solar system spanning civilization can appreciate. But space is hard and deadly, and there are so many ways that the universe is trying to kill you. Now, my guests today, guests plural, are Zach and Kelly Wienersmith, and they wrote a book called A City on Mars. And it's a, this question of, like, how difficult will it actually be to live in space, to build a colony on the moon, on Mars? in space itself? Will we see huge cities on Mars where people are living and enjoying that Martian lifestyle? Spoiler alert, it's going to be tricky and hard. So enjoy this conversation with Zach and Kelly, where we go into the details about just how much we are not prepared to live in space. Zach and Kelly, it's great to see you guys again. I'm going to have a problem with this interview. Because the whole gist of your book is that space sucks and, you know, it's going to be a lot more challenging than we think it's going to be. Science fiction is filled ahead with nonsense. I 100% agree with you. So I I don't even know where to start. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, we could... We are happy to just be on a show where the point is you guys are totally right. Yeah, you guys are and right. That's, like, that's great. And very yeah. attractive. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. That's right. Or Yeah, yeah. Or like we could just not talk about space. I mean, like, we can talk I about birds. parasites, too. You want to talk about parasites? Parasites? Do I ever? Yeah. <laughs> space parasites. I love that. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, all right. I guess we should do our jobs here. Yeah. Um, so science fiction has filled our minds with this idealized version of what space exploration is going to look like. It's, it's kind of like going on a cruise where you hop on your space boat and you go to your spaceport, and then you end up on your other planet, which is kind of like maybe Jamaica or like some other place. And now you're living the good life, but you're not on Earth, and you're an explorer, yeah. and an adventurer. How how wrong did I get that? Hmm. <laughs> it depends on what sci-fi series you're talking about. You know, things can get well, pretty bad in the expanse. Yeah. For example. Well, I guess the re I guess the um. Like the reality, the reality of, of space exploration, of, of living on other worlds. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. A, a very common analogy is uh, what's sometimes called the age of exploration. Uh, and, and, and which, you know, if you want, the, the analogy usually extends some something like from around Columbus to whenever the, the speaker decides, like, people stopped being strong explorer types, which was sometime around 1923. And... Um, and it's basically not so good. Uh, so, you know, paramount is that, you know, historically when people explore for other lands, they're usually looking for stuff or trade, uh, which is, you know, another way to get stuff. And that's just not available in space. The moon and Mars are not only barren, but poisonous. Um, they have no resources that are worth getting, even if you drop the cost of getting their, uh, you know, past the, the the level Elon Musk is predicting, like extraordinarily optimistic assumptions. It's just still not worth it. Worth getting to bring back. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, if there was like a pre-existing space economy, maybe you could argue that for that economy, you need stuff. But why it's there in the first place is an open question. Um, you know, it's also um, you have to go pretty far back before you reach the level of distance and danger you would expect for a space mission. Uh, so certainly you'd have to go past the steamboat era uh, and uh, to, to get to that point. Um, there's also just like, you know, uh, the motivation is just not not there. The motivation tends to be a kind of like destiny motivation. There's this misconception, I think, that usually when people went colonizing or exploring, it was a sort of pure curiosity motive, but almost invariably it was acquisition. You know, so, so a, a lot of the exploration that, that came out of Europe uh, from like the early 1600s was just to visit these wealthier civilizations and trade with them. It was, you know, and so people often analogize to like Columbus or the, you know, the, the East India Company or something, which is, you know, somewhat uncomfortable at this point. But, but like, you know, there was clear money on the table there and there's just not for space. As a sci-fi geek, what surprised me the most when we started researching this was how different, for example, the habitats would look. So, you know, I had imagined these beautiful glass domes with, you know, trees growing in the domes. You're walking through the trees and you're looking out at like a sunrise on Mars. Um, and so one of the biggest surprises to me was that 
probably glass domes are out. Like space <laughs> radiation is too bad. I, Brett, Brent Sherwood wrote this great book about architecture in space, and he noted that those beautiful glass ceilings or whatever in the rotating space stations are going to bake you and kill you with radiation. <laughs> and so like, and so instead we're probably going to be burying things underneath regolith. And I hadn't imagined that we would be like living like ants uh, on Mars or the moon. And, and, and the little, little inconveniences add up, you know? So for example, the regolith is it's got, you know, these tiny little sharp edges. And so you have to make sure you don't breathe it in and you have to make sure that you don't get it in your equipment because it'll grind up your equipment and you have to make sure you don't get it in your habitat. And all of these little inconveniences that, uh, that life in space will be filled with, you know, they, they don't usually deal with, you know, like, okay, well, we got to take off our exterior suit to get the regolith off. Like all these boring things that you leave out of the movies, uh, are going to make up most of your life in space. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, on a rainy day when it's muddy and I, w- and I have to wear my boots <laughs> and I have to go outside and I think like, I'm going to have to go and I have to find my rain gear and I have to put on my boots and go outside. I'm going to tromp around in the mud and then I'm going to come back. But now I'm going to have to take off my boots and switch to my shoes, but my porch is wet. So do I like open up the door carefully, grab my shoes from inside, and then I put I don't want to go outside. Yeah. Right. And <laughs> yeah, you know exactly. Well, and, and you don't have to pre-breathe oxygen so that you so don't get the outside. bend before you go outside. <laughs> you know, before right, you right. And I, yeah, exactly. I don't, and I'm not having to count the yeah. overall radiation that I've received every second that I've gone outside to decide whether that's worth it for the cancer load that I'm looking for down the road. Yeah, this is um and so like Antarctica yeah. is is like a brutal place to go and attempt to exist. And there is this gigantic, just, you know, enormous amount of resources that are expended on every single human being that is there doing important research work. Mm -hmm. But if you wanted, you could go live in Antarctica. Like you could just go there right now, build a house, live on the coast, have penguin pets. How come people don't do that? Well, I I think the (laughs) penguin pets part – there's laws against. I think, <laughs> okay. I, I think you're not allowed to touch or interact with the wildlife down there. But but other than that, uh, you know, I mean, Antarctica is so much better than Mars. Like there there is a tradition where everyone runs outside with just their shoes on. So like otherwise they're naked. And what is it like? They run a hundred meters and then they come back. I think you're the one who told I think, me. About I think this. the tradition is. I'm going to blank on the name, but it's thing like the 300 degree challenge. And so the idea is you start in a sauna where it's something like 120 Fahrenheit or whatever it is, and then you run outside. And I don't know if you cross 300 degrees. Anyway, it's a bad idea. Uh, apparently, the, the the rule is don't fall. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but but yeah, so it's much more survivable. Although it's worth noting, Antarctica is a desert technically. It's 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 covered in ice, so you can get water, but it has so little precipitation. It's technically a desert. It sucks really bad. Yeah, and so so there are times of the year where you can't get any fresh food supplies because it's just not safe to to fly in planes, for example. And, you know, that's sort of like Mars. You know, it takes six yeah. months to get there. And, the you know, because of orbital mechanics, the window o- only opens every two years. So there's periods where you can't get any fresh stuff unless you're growing it yourself. Um, but, yeah, you could you could die if you're left outside exposed to the cold for so for too long. That's that's sort can of I, Mars. Can life. I give my, my favorite story about how awful Antarctica is? I was reading a book called Operation Deep Freeze, which was on the history of the U.S. Um, getting, getting Antarctica per- permanently crewed, you know, a permanent base. And they had this little snippet I found, which was about, you know, know, historically, the really good explorers learned from indigenous people from the far north, the the human beings would live the farthest north. And one of the tips was you get those um, uh, Inuit style sunglasses with a little slit to stop you from going snow blind. So they tried doing that in Antarctica, they did the right thing, they learned from the people who'd been there, and they don't work in Antarctica, because that little slit, when it's that cold, you have a problem with your eyes. So they had to use modern sunglasses. So like, you can't even do the thing you're supposed to do, which is like, learn from the ways of the... uh, Wait, I don't get what the problem was. Like the slit iced over? Or? Yeah, so it's like like whatever it is, like merely negative 60, <laughs> you can have the slit, but at like negative 100, it's not going to work so good. I, it was like too cold or something. I don't know. It was, it was a little right. tidbit in the book. Your breath but... is like creating a <laughs> visor in front of your, yeah, yeah. Um, and and so like you guys pretty, like the part that I thought was most interesting and the part that I could sort of see this the sort of dawning horror in your minds of the book was as you attempted to come up with a reason why yeah. <laughs> and you like, and you like overturned every, pretty much every single reason that anybody's ever said for why we should go to space. Um, so can you go with like, give me those, like those top ones, the ones that most people think are the reasons to go to space. 
we we can take turns. Sure, sure. Yeah, take turns. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> so one argument you often hear from like the Bezos rotating space station camp is that, uh, you know, we should create settlements in space because we can move humans from Earth to space and that will reduce our burden on Earth. And a big part of moving to space is to save the Earth. And so we'll reduce overpopulation. And so what we concluded is that when you start thinking about the numbers, it just doesn't add up. So, you know, the Earth is putting on something like 220,000 people a day. And so you'd have to move (laughs) 220,000 people a day, not only off planet and rockets that, you know, currently can move like six to eight people to LEO, not like to a habitat on Mars, but suddenly we're going to have to scale up to 220,000 people a day and be able to house them. That's to tread water. To tread water, to (laughs) tread water. And people need to be willing to like volunteer for this. So, all right. So reducing overpopulation, that doesn't feel feasible to me. Uh, Okay, sure. Yeah. So related to that point is this idea that, okay, well, maybe you could move heavy industry. To space, so we looked at one heavy industry, which was uh, cement production, which is you know the, the number per year is something like three billion tons. Was that it? Are, are needed on Earth? So some extraordinary amount, and just suffice it to say, it's more mass than the two hundred twenty thousand people that was already crazy. And then you're going to be dropping this stuff back towards Earth. So it's just like the, the numbers don't add up. And by the way, the, the idea that having to conduct however many hundreds of thousands of launches per day is going to help the biosphere anytime soon is pretty questionable. Yeah, and so then there's the overview effect which is the idea that, you know, if you look at Earth from space, you realize all of these things by having this overview. And uh, some of the things that you recognize are that, you know, Earth is fragile and there's this tiny blue ribbon that protects us and there's no borders and we need to be sort of coming together and working together because we're all one. Uh, and I, we, had, we had the opportunity to interview one cosmonaut and I asked him, I said, can you see borders from space? And he said, of course you can see borders from space. <laughs> so you right. can see, what is it, uh, India and Pakistan? Pakistan. Yeah. yeah, so they've got a bunch of lights along their border because they don't want people crossing. Uh, and then, of course, you can see Korea and South Korea, or North sorry, North Korea, Korea and South Korea because North Korea is almost completely dark. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think that the overview is just making you not recognize the problems on Earth that have to be <laughs> dealt with. And, like, if you don't recognize them because you had this great view in space, that doesn't yeah. make you wise that makes you like sort of ignorant of what's actually happening. And so, okay, I don't think it's going to perfect human relations. Yeah, and, and just, just to add to that, like there have been studies trying to find evidence of the overview effect and they're quite equivocal and uh, poorly done. And... What, one study found that the like benefits uh, when you tried to quantify various things, like, you know, how much more open are you to other people or something are on par with what new moms feel after they have their first child. And like, it is a profound experience holding your child for the first time. Um, but I know a lot of moms who are still jerks. Like, it, so it, it doesn't save everything. Um, yeah. Right, but isn't like a year rail pass and a, and a fun summer a way to get a similar effect into your brain? Yeah, I'd yes. probably say. Right. And, and also I would add like, I mean, just to, to be a bit cynical, if you give an astronaut a quiz and say, did you become extra wise and brilliant? You know, that's, <laughs> you know. What? Yep. Can I see your new paintings? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, there was. He also said the Frank White, the philosopher who came up with this, uh, said that he came up with the idea initially when he was on a plane ride, and that plane rides give you sort of a mini overview effect. <laughs> and you know, we once saw a guy smack another guy in the face because he put his seat back on a plane. <laughs> and so I don't feel like planes are giving people sort of mini overview yeah. effects that are solving our problems, even in that tiny environment. Yeah. It's it's a nice idea. Uh, A a more uh, a sort of broader scale one that people will sometimes claim is nations cooperate when they cooperate in space. And I feel like that that at least kind of passes an initial sniff test. It just turns out it's probably not true. There's a a book from the the 90s called I think it's called The Politics of Outer Space by Von Bank. And he basically, you know, with a lot of evidence argues, actually, it's the other way around when countries are cooperating. Uh, we tend to also do space stuff um, as sort of demonstrative behavior. So like often when we say the cooperation thing is BS, someone will say, well, what about Apollo-Soyuz test program in 1975, right? For for listeners of yours who might not know, it's the first time Soviets and Americans docked. They We, we docked our spaceships. We docked some Apollo hardware with one of their Soyuz craft. And, but, but Von Bank points out like this was after uh, detente. Right. And then we stopped cooperating for a very long time after the Carter administration and and arguably for a very good reason, which was the Carter administration had reservations about Soviet human rights abuses. So even if 
you know, space did sort of by hypnosis produce cooperation. It's not obviously desirable because we had a value difference. Um, yeah. Is, is it, could you tell the docking story? Oh, we, so there's a funny story about the, 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 the docking mechanism. I know there's not a lot of funny stories about docking mechanisms, but this is one of them. Um, yeah, I, we, we like it because it illustrates the like lack of becoming philosophers or whatever. So this, I found this story, it's repeated in a few places, but John Young was part of it. John Young, one of the like the sort of astronauts, astronaut was on Apollo, was one of the first pilots of the shuttle. He wrote a memoir and he said, you know, when we were doing ASTP, um, there was a problem, which was basically nobody wanted to be the drogue. Nobody wanted to be the female end of the docking mechanism. Or the phrase he used was nobody wanted to be the one getting the business. Uh, and so it was like a sort of international thing. Neither the Soviets nor Americans wanted to be the receiving member of the interaction. And so they had to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to come up with what he called an androgynous uh, docking system. Uh, what I love about this. So petty. So petty. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. And, and what I love about that story, there's like a kind of like little moral to it, which is apparently the androgynous system worked better. So I feel like there, there's some sort of there's like a kid's book in this, you know, about how about something. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure you got some sketches somewhere where you're, yeah. you're sort of hashing it out. Um, yeah. the, the, I mean, the, the that global cooperation leading to space or vice versa, whatever. I mean, you know, the global trade. I mean, you build an iPhone and you right. suck in the interactions between 50 countries and you've got global cooperation. Right. Um, and and I also think that's sort of like that justification to say, it's kind of like justifying military expense and saying, well, we get an increase in technology because we built right. better ways to kill people. There are other ways to invest <laughs> right. in technology and get benefits and yes. not have had to kill people in the meantime well and, and the international space station is the most expensive human-made thing ever and it didn't stop the russians That's from right. invading ukraine like the cooperation in space didn't right didn't do anything yeah so there are a lot of proposals for how you might get rich uh often it's stated as humanity will get rich which is of course a slightly different matter um but the usual proposals are that there's valuable helium-3 on the moon and i promise i won't get into it but we have a section on this that links to a paper and essentially it's just bogus it's it's not worth getting it would be a huge amount of effort for something we can make here with technology we already have um people also say the asteroids we can make money on the asteroids and the basic deal, I think people have this conception that there are like giant globs of platinum or gold floating around. And there aren't. There are giant globs of things that might have a somewhat higher concentration of platinum than available in most places on Earth. They're still extraordinarily hard to get. And there are very few of, of, of those asteroids. So probably not. Um, set aside the like legal aspects of throwing a hunk of metal at Earth uh, by a private corporation. And then people also tend to say space-based solar power. There are fairly regular announcements from VC firms and agencies about how we'll get space-based solar. And again, without getting to the math, the numbers just don't stack up versus like the marginal cost of adding a solar panel in Arizona or California or the outback or the Sahara. Um, the, the get rich arguments are just not very strong. I think, it, it, you know, there's also like regularly you'll see like, we'll have a translunar economy for moon mining. And this is just like, to me, like absolutely bizarre because the moon doesn't have like concentrated valuable resources. You can, you can, you can literally say like there is valuable stuff on the moon, but only in the sense that there's valuable stuff if you dig a hole on earth. Um, and then when you add like the need to launch a skyscraper of propellant to go get it, it's just not even close to worth it. Yeah, yeah. So there, like every possible way that you could try to make money from space, you could make that money cheaper just by digging holes in the ground or putting up solar panels here on Earth. Exactly. The way I like to say it, like the solar system, everywhere you go in the solar system, you're operating on the same periodic table. Like, you know, you, you could maybe get higher concentrations of stuff, but there's no like dilithium crystals or unobtainium. That's why sci-fi stories always have those elements. Yeah. So, so then, but I mean, you weren't completely grumpy. There were a couple of things that you thought maybe made a compelling reason for humanity's future in space. So when we started researching the book, I, I think both of us, or at least me, thought the most compelling reason was that it's awesome and humans are going to do it one day because it's awesome. And like, honestly, who has a right to stop you? Like if Musk wants to do it, who has a right to yeah. stop you and or to stop him? And over the course of researching space law, we realize that actually people have a right to stop him. Uh, and if you, you know, for example, if he goes out to Mars and he makes a claim that Mars is now, you know, Moscow, like this is this is a new nation. He's actually violating international space law. And it's the United States' responsibility to make him stop doing that. And people will say, well, oh, how, how could they make him stop? 
And they could just stop letting him ship his rockets off. And anybody living on Mars is going to die on Mars if they don't get regular resupplies from Earth for generations. It's just going to take a long time to be self-sustaining. And so because of repercussions back here on Earth, you know, things like what if you accidentally nudge a heavy piece of mass into Earth's atmosphere or if a terrorist does that? Just basically space activities need to be regulated because it has implications for the rest of us down here on Earth. So it's awesome, but people have a right to stop you. Right. But the but the it's awesome. I think that still passes the test. Yeah. Like, Please. yeah. Like it's awesome within parameters. It's still fine. Yeah, it, it's awesome. And if we do it right and safely, it's going to be super awesome. It <laughs> right. would be really not awesome if we do it the wrong way. But yeah, no, yeah. still awesome. And then okay, good. All right. Me? So space is still awesome. It's like, like for the people who are just getting grumpier and angrier <laughs> about this episode, they're already their fingers are hovering over the dislike button. Uh, you heard us just say it right now. Space is awesome. And it's going to be even more awesome. Yeah. And space and that, exploration. Awesome. Yeah, across awesome. the board. Settlement. Awesome. Little complicated. We want to make sure we do it right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I just to add the like a cap on that. Like, I think part of why we talk about that argument is very commonly among space geeks. There's this idea that like, you know, okay, maybe you won't get rich, and maybe you won't have world peace, and maybe you won't blah 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 blah. But we want to, and and there's no reason a third party gets to say no. And so the question we ask is, should a third party get to say no? Uh, and then the second argument is just this idea of a long term plan. In other words, so you know, Stephen Hawking said this, Elon Musk says this. We need a plan B for humanity because you don't put all your eggs in one basket. If you are like think it's like an ethical duty to make sure the human species survives and prospers, having a second backup in case we really mess up Earth would be good. And that's like on its face, a totally reasonable argument. But what takes the rest of the book is saying like, you know, can we do this? And then also, you know, is the existential risk equation as simple as, you know, one plus one equals two? And by the end, we will say it is not. There's probably an increase in existential risk. Right. So you, so that, that argument that we need to go somewhere else to deal with an existential risk for Earth, to compress the entire book down into an answer to that <laughs> question, the answer is no. Yes. No, I, I, We'd almost rather say it's, 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 it's like, Probably no. I mean, there, there's, you can you can posit scenarios where maybe it's 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 fine, and, and in the very long term, it's plausible. You can imagine some world where there's kind of like Star Trekky technology, or even very very long term where we're talking about colonizing another star. Um, but but the idea of putting all this infrastructure above Earth's gravity well uh, anytime soon is is kind of terrifying. Well, I think about like the the things that have happened in society when humanity had to downscale its population or its living arrangements, like when people moved from mainland Australia to uh, Tasmania and apparently they, they lost the ability to fish. Like, like there's technology that is only developed when you have a large enough number of people. And so, you know, I think the thought is like, well, you could just send a hundred really smart scientists to Mars, but if they are truly cut off, then all of that institutional knowledge, all of that specialization goes away to, I don't know, fungal farmers and air duct repair people. And that's, you know, and that's yeah, what you do. Yeah. I mean, I, I should say like, we, we actually at one point, this didn't end up in the book, but we dug a little bit into the literature talking about, my understanding is that it's considered like, there's not a like neat relationship between sort of social complexity and size of um, population. Like, like it, 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 it's, it's much more jagged. And I, I think it's, it's like d debated, but, but, you know, in the context of space in, in, in particular though, like you can't have that loss, you just die. Uh, so we, we were actually, Kelly was on a call-in show about space once, and a guy said, uh, Kelly was saying, well, where are you going to get microchips? Because like chip fabs, they take a lot of water. They're really complex. We only have a, a small number on, on Earth that can do the really complicated stuff. And the guy said, we don't need chips on Mars. You just need like pumps and stuff. And it's like this, you, I am not going to your Mars settlement. You are going to die. Um, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a line of thinking that that the only way to have a, an, an, a like a, like a level of technology required for that is is one with the population of Earth. That it's only with the entire population of planet Earth do you get gigantic chip fabs and the level of advanced technology that that we have. Like maybe you can imagine China with 1.6 billion people and a technological infrastructure being able to be self-sufficient, but even that would run into all kinds of issues. And so until you've moved a billion people to Mars, 
you're going to have a really hard time matching the kind of lifestyle that I think the people who have left Earth have come to expect. Yeah, and I, the, you know, we were talking to a friend of ours who was an aerospace guy, and you know, I, I, was, I was trying to say, is there some way to back of the envelope say how much like energy you would need on Mars versus like a household on Earth? And as we were discussing, we kind of decided it was just too richly complex of a question. But one thing he pointed out was, you know, on Earth, the easiest, most efficient, most clean way to ship stuff is over the sea, right? Which just doesn't. So you try to imagine like having a China, but without all those shipping lanes, right? And so it's 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 like a much harder problem. And that's just one thing. Well, in Cuba and North Korea have tried to be to some extent autarkic, autarkic, yeah, and it hasn't worked so great. And a lot of the people living in those countries would probably rather not be living in those countries. Yeah, uh, and you know, I, th- I think there's something like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. it's thousands of different specialists for medical stuff, like all the different kind of medical problems you could have. And yeah. I'm sh- and I'm sure you could live with far fewer of them. But wouldn't you really <laughs> prefer to live in a place where if you get pancreatic cancer, the pancreatic cancer person can help you out? I mean, yeah. I. I know life expectancy is low for that one. Maybe that wasn't a good choice. But still, you'd like to have your specialist there when something goes wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and so but you but you see people in, in discussion forums and and all kinds of places across the internet, and they, you know, when they were taking volunteers for the Mars One project, mm-hmm. there was an endless lineup of people who were being interviewed and they were narrowed down and then the whole thing went out of business. And so it wasn't a problem, but, but so we didn't have to watch them die on Mars. <laughs> um, TV. Yeah. Right, right, right. But I, but like that romantic notion that people have that they want to do this, that they want to be that explorer, like what's going on there? Do you think? I mean, it, it is awesome. It remains awesome. And I think oh, right, that's a space lot of is it. awesome. We covered that earlier, right? I remember now. <laughs> I, we did. But so, I mean, for to me, one of the problems is that, like, those people have a right to decide that they want to die on the red planet. Like, that's their <laughs> right. But when you're talking about settlements, you have to have kids. And and to me, that's where I feel like it gets, it gets really ethically dicey because now you're bringing children into this environment that they're probably going to die in. And that's going to be very harsh. And we talk about a bunch of ethical implications of that uh, in the book, but, uh, but yeah, I guess my, to get to your question, my guess is that they just think it's awesome. And then also there's just certain personality types, you know, like some of these people were saying like, I will go, maybe I'll die. And yes, I'm leaving my young children and my wife behind, (laughs) but this is an important thing for humanity to do. And you know, there'll always be those people. Maybe you don't want to restart civilization <laughs> with those people. I don't mean to be mean. We need- yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but like there are ways that you can you can experience 95% of that here on Earth. Mm-hmm. Like I, earlier I said, go set up your, your house on Antarctica. Give it a shot. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do think there is also like if you, if you know your polar history, polar exploration history, there is a kind of romance of being the first. Yeah. Um, right. So, so like, like it, it's, it's so obvious. You don't even think about how it's kind of goofy. Like Roald Amundsen, you could have also said, I've been the first to be at a million places between here and the pole, but it was about the pole. Like he skipped over this whole interior part, you know, just made a beeline. Right. So there, there's a romance of, of, of being the first human to go to some special place. Well, and, and in particular, he set off with his ship heading to the North pole, found out that recently two other claims had been made on the North pole for being the first to be there. And it wasn't just that he wanted to see the North Pole. When he found that out, he was like, no, forget this. I'm going to <laughs> right. the South Pole. And he we'll see the other to one. the other, yeah, other pole. Yes. Uh, and he, you know, he won. And that's why we remember his name. So it's not just about uh, ex- like a, a heart with a desire to explore. Yeah. It's about being first and getting your name in the history books too, which, yeah. you know, I get. But Yeah. And, and that's interesting too. Like um, there's actually a ton of exploration that can be done just around your own house that you don't have to go halfway around the world or halfway across the solar system that if what you're trying to do is be an explorer, you can go and try new restaurants that you would be afraid to go into. So I, I think what, what the people who are growling at their speaker right now would say is, well, that's the, the, there's a difference between exploration in the sense of gathering scientific data and the sort of frontiersman exploration that they're imagining. Cause there's a belief and we just, we just put out an article arguing against this, but there's a belief that kind of, living on that edge where it is very difficult and where there are constant challenges will result in a, a not just a culture that's more creative, but like literal technological pro- progress. Like, you know, they'll need to have better robots. So they'll, you know, be really incentivized to have better robots so they don't die. Um, and to which we say, you know, one, the, the, there's this whole thing about the, the the frontier as you think of it from movies is a myth, but also just, you know, like, 
scientists working in AI right now, for example, get paid something like a million dollars a year. They are highly incentivized, right? The idea that they also need to be threatened with death by suffocation in order to be productive is is ludicrous. And by the way, you know, it, it, we point this out. It's not as if the like high technology is proceeding out of like caves in Afghanistan where life is indeed quite hostile. It's coming from the effete coastal tech hubs. Um, so, you know, we, we have a joke we call the necrosphere thought experiment, which is like, well, if you really believe that throwing engineers in doom produces technology, we should just evacuate the air out of a dome and fill it with radiation and throw engineers in and tell them to survive and just collect the rewards, um, right. which if it sounds absurd, is it's exactly what people claim for Mars. But, but I wonder, like, there's some kind of overlap with, like, a fascination with the apocalypse, for mm-hmm. example, mm-hmm. Yes. where, you know, you – everyone is gone, but the shopping malls are still open and the food is fresh and you're wandering around and it's a fresh reset and you're one of the chosen people and you're able to live this vibrant new life in the yeah. decaying bones of humanity after everything – everyone else is gone. And I, I feel like there's, like – it's just so deeply flawed. It's fine. It's a fantasy. But the reality is, you know, you got a toothache. Oh, now you got an abscess and you're dead. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I do think part of that. So like part of, I, you know, I remember we were talking about this the other day, like, like right when COVID started, there were all these preppers who were like, I told them, but they didn't listen to me. And now we're in the apocalypse. And it's like, it's an, it's a, I can't get organic oranges now apocalypse. It's not a like roaming the highways with a, a shotgun. And I, I, I feel like there was a kind of palpable disappointment in some circles that you couldn't have that. You know, they've been waiting for this moment, you know. And I, I do think there's a kind of like, the oh, the apocalypse won't work because Earth's not bad enough, you know. And, and I feel like a lot of Mars fantasies, not all of them, but many of them are predicated on the idea that Earth in some way sucks. Uh, this is very explicit in some corners where they will say essentially – Earth is basically a sort of pansy planet. It's too bureaucratic. It's no longer creative. It's, it's you know, too pearl clutching. If we could just take our manly men uh, to Mars, we could start over without all you wuss bags back on Earth. But but without that separation, we can't do it. Um, and it's just like, one, when you go, you're going to be totally dependent on the wuss bags running finance and tech back here on Earth. But but even if you were, there's just no evidence of this idea that like um, people on the frontier become like sort of mighty in, in, in the way described. And anyway, you know, as you said, like you know, one of the classic problems in space is that the memoirs are boring, right? So so a lot of money was paid to early astronauts for their memoirs. Turns out nobody wanted to read them because actual life in space is like sitting around and and washing the toilets, you know, and <laughs> and, and, yeah, and having I- your tooth abscess. I, I talked to uh, Don Pettit, who's an astronaut, yeah. and we talked for a long time. And you know, one of my favorite astronauts, uh, fascinating guy. And we were talking about like what your average day was, and he says just like exercise and maintenance yep. was my whole yep. day. Yep. That I would, you know, I'd exercise for two or three hours every day just to stop my body, like per- like my body from falling apart. But then there was just an endless number of things to fix and things to keep running and things to clean and so on. And then if you were lucky, you got half an hour of time to do some science and half an hour of personal time. And then you fell asleep and then you woke up and you did it all over again. Yeah. yeah. And so, that's your life. <laughs> Scott, Scott Kelly's book, Endurance, is another great book for documenting all of that. He's, you know, he's like, you wake up in the morning, you got a headache because the carbon scrubbers, they're trying to figure out what's the lowest amount of carbon dioxide we can scrub from the environment and still be fine. But I get a headache and he doesn't. And now I've got to try to put the bathroom back together or the toilet back together. And Peggy Whit- Whitson is talking about needing to like put on a glove and smoosh down the waist every once in a while. To, like, And it's like, oh, oh this, is, this is not yeah. fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was um, recently. I was in Tucson, and I went to the Biosphere Two. And you guys talked quite a lot about Biosphere Two, and it was this haunting experience for me because it was kind of like going back to like a a mecca for space exploration. It felt like this was this place where someone had said, okay, fine, let's figure out if humans can live in a closed environment. Like we're going to put in the money, we're going to build the thing, and. And yet the experiment failed for various reasons and it wasn't continued. That's the part that's still blowing my mind. Yeah. 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 Go ahead. That was our, I think, surprising conclusion about Biosphere 2. Like, you know, most of the people that we've mentioned Biosphere 2 to will say something to the effect of like, oh, yeah, that, that was a total failure, right? And to me, 
it kind of really wasn't. Like, yes, they lost 10 to 18% of their body weight. They split into two hateful factions and were literally spitting on each other. <laughs> uh, the only kind of scorpion that can actually be deadly in the U.S. managed to get into their facilities and they had to worry about that. So, like, a lot of stuff went wrong. Um, but it was supposed to run in two-year cycles over and over and over again. Yeah. And, you know, for the first run, it went pretty well. Like, yes, they had to pipe in oxygen, but they figured out what the problem was. That would have been fixed next time. They had a bunch of fruit trees that hadn't matured enough to provide fruit by the first time, but by the next time they would have. And so it is, on the one hand, it's a bummer that we didn't get more cycles because we could have learned a lot. Um, on the other hand, a bunch of the life support system that people that I talked to said, Biosphere 2 is cool, but the problem is that it was made so big and so complicated that it would be very hard to figure out what your lessons would be for starting on Mars. So like a Mars you know, ECLSS uh, closed loop ecosystem thing is going to have to be pretty small initially. And so you're not going to have as many diverse, as much diversity. Mm -hmm. So we don't have the equations for like, how many wheat plants do you need to convert this much exhaled carbon dioxide into oxygen? And how much do you need, you know, how much right. feces? How much you coral need? in your... Yeah, <laughs> right. And, and so they were arguing that the money would have been spent better if you had made lots mm. of tiny little biospheres and then you figured out, you know, the calculations, you know, figured out your nice ecological equations and then built up. Um, but won't that be your sign that people are starting to get serious and that this is getting real is when there have been 20 uh, cycles of a closed loop environment here on Earth where people have learned, have, have worked through every variable and now they know what it's going to take to live on Mars. Like we don't, like if the ships are going to Mars in four years. Right. We don't see that yet. Yeah. So, so, so like from, from Deep Freeze on Antarctica, one of the first things they did is they started putting like soldiers in like these big fridge setups. Like, can you set up a tent in here? Can you live in here? And like the equivalent for Mars is going to be things like, can we build like a giant container uh, and, and grow enough food and generate enough oxygen, recycle enough waste to survive, you know, for whatever size of group we're having? And, and there's just like almost no spending on this sort of thing. Yeah, and, and so at some point they had, as I mentioned, they had to put oxygen into Biosphere 2. And like, you don't want to learn that lesson <laughs> on Mars. Yeah. So you want to have done enough iterations that you can be as sure as possible. And Mars is going to be different. You'll never figure everything out ahead of time. You're going to have to do some problem solving on the ground. But you want to have solved as many of these problems as you can because there's there's no one who's going to be able to send you extra oxygen if it turns out you're running out. Like, they won't get it to you on time. Yeah. And I mean, there are some Mars simulations both in the US and in China where people go and they they spend a couple of weeks or a month in or months in a simulated Mars environment and they handle the communication delays, but they're breathing air and you know, and and they've got food and yeah, and they're they're not closed loops. J yeah. Japan and China have done some simulations that include closed loops, but like in China where we are is like they had three men in uh, one of those closed loops and they were there was too much carbon dioxide, not enough oxygen. So they had to switch out two of the big men for two smaller female participants. Like that's where we are with these systems <laughs> right now. Like, oh, not enough air for everybody. Got to get in some shorter people. And so like, so yes, but th there have been a lot of, uh, I think psychology based simulations that don't include these complicated ecological systems. Um, and I'm not sure how useful they are. Right, right, right. And then the other thing, of course, you talk about this idea of like, what's going to happen with gestation in low gravity? Can people give birth on Mars? We don't know. I, and so again, sort of like, I feel like the thing that we're going to see is some kind of gravity experiment, rotating cylinder where people attempt to mitigate the gravity loss to find out. And then you're going to have animals giving birth. And then you're going to find out if the animals are okay in lunar gravity, Martian gravity, etc. Is any of that on the horizon right now? No, not really. There are researchers, but yeah, they, you know, you know, if you try to imagine wanting to get to a place where you can be confident that a human family can be formed on Mars, like the the amount of work that has to be done and the enormous expense of it is very foreboding. And that's if you start tomorrow, which nobody is, right? So you know, you you mentioned it's like you know when we get serious about Mars, we'll, we we'll be doing these biosphere two type things. You'll know. We feel like reproduction is the other one. Like if if these space billionaires are really serious about doing this soon. They ought to be on this. And 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 the, the point that gets us, and we, we, we have a whole thing about this, but it's like, you know, if, if the Mars One adults 
want to go and die on Mars. Like I, we feel like they can sign a waiver and that's fine. As long as they're compass mentis, whatever, it's their business, their bodies. But like when you have kids, you know, there's some world where you get into an environment where based on the conditions in Mars, you know, microgravity, radiation, et cetera, you're going to expect a higher rate of problem uh, problems for those children. Maybe you'll have children with various types of handicaps who can't be in an economic sense, a net plus for the settlement. And you'll at the same time, not have the infrastructure to care for those people. And that's a kind of ethical nightmare. But what you often find uh, is people who either think it's not a problem because actually it will be tough on the frontier. And sometimes people will even say the quiet part out loud. They'll say, well, natural selection is going to have to take its course. And, and, and like I, the most generous interpretation of that is horrific. And, 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 and so like, you know, it's, it's a, you know, I, I worry people when we say, well, there are ethical problems in space. They think we're kind of like academics with like concerns about like, you know, preserving the integrity of the Martian wilderness or something. But it's like we're talking about not running an experiment on babies. Like, there is no ethical framework that allows that that I'm aware of. Yeah, yeah. Now, but one of the things that I that I sort of think about this is we're looking at the future of, of you know, space element, space exploration from our current technological level. But as we've seen, the technology is increasing rapidly and our capability and, and infrastructure is growing exponentially. And so do you think this is more just like it's about a, a, a time window, like not today, but give it time and then this stuff is inevitable? I, I do think we'll do this eventually because I, I think people will continue to think this is awesome. And so we'll continue to want to do it. But, you know, I think even if, you know, in five years we had all the technological stuff that we needed to get to Mars, that wouldn't be enough time to do the biology research appropriately and to figure out the ecology equations to make sure you've got these closed loop ecosystems that are working. I think we could visit Mars briefly for, you know, like a two year stay or whatever without knowing a lot more. But if you're thinking about a settlement, I think we've got at least a decade, maybe multiple yeah. decades ahead of us before we can actually get these data because they just take a long time. It takes a long time to get biology and ecology data. Yeah, I would also say, like, in addition to like that that stuff that's really hard to get ethically, if it can be gotten ethically, a lot of the enabling technologies uh, might actually increase the danger. So, if you imagine tomorrow, you're told, well, there's a you can build a fusion reactor that's the size of uh, a truck or something, right? So, obviously, that'd be extremely useful for going to space. But it also means you've got more heavy, fast objects moving in space. And to the extent you increase that infrastructure and put it in more hands, you've increased existential risk to humanity. So, you know, while it's enabling this extra settlement, it's also increasing the danger. I think that's true of most advancement in space, and that's why we're in favor of a kind of like system for watching over these concerns. Right. So I guess as, I mean, we live with that today with people having cars, you know, like you, and obviously there's sort of a limit to the amount of damage that a person can do with a car, but a person can end other people's lives through inaction, through distraction, through accident, whatever. Right. And yet we, we put people in the, behind the wheel and we live our lives with this risk. But the but giving people the ability to move an asteroid out in space that could be on a trajectory to hit Earth is next level. Yeah, and, yeah, and and, and and like so the the analogy we like is to like like you know nuclear weapons is something where basically even even like ultra libertarians are like yeah regular private citizens can't have nuclear weapons that's obviously crazy, um, and the question is like to what extent is a huge space infrastructure along the spectrum from like a regular transaction where nobody should limit you toward nuclear weapons, where obviously somebody should be saying no. And, and our argument is essentially pretty far along. Um, and, and, and just to represent the opposition, you know, the usual response we've gotten is, well, you know, Earth has had nuclear weapons uh, since 1945 and we haven't blown ourselves up. So why would you know, having the space stuff add to the risk. People, you know, we have mutually assured destruction. Why would we do that? And our response is essentially like, that would be like saying it would have no additional risk to give every country on earth and a couple of dudes who run companies nuclear weapons would not add to our risk because after all, nothing bad has happened since 1945, which seems just sort of obviously crazy. And the other argument that we often get is that asteroids, you know, for example, are not very good weapons because they're hard to aim and it takes a long time to sort of get them to where you're going. So people have a lot of time to plan. And and that's all true. But like people make mistakes. And so, may, you know, maybe they don't mean to hit the U.S., but it like it gets too close. It gets pulled in. And then, you know, there are terrorists. And the more people that you get out in space, the more communities you get out there. You know, you somebody who's a bit unhinged and has the wrong 
you know, ability to move heavy things like, you know, th- this risk increases. It doesn't have to be a mastermind who's trying to go after a particular country. You can just have mistakes or people who are evil. There are some humans who have been evil. <laughs> right. But but I think sort of back to my I mean, like maybe I'll, I'll rephrase my question briefly because I don't think it, it sort of sunk. But um like when you take, say, the growth, the increase of the gross domestic product and just like the increase in growth, and you chart that forward a few hundred years, and you have to be living on every single planet and asteroid in the entire solar system, you're, you're consuming the gross domestic product of the solar system within a few hundred years. And that's at like a 2% growth rate. And so that growth will like, unless we stop growing, which isn't, entirely possible, who knows. But if we keep going, then these things that are far-fetched and impossible today become inevitable down the road. It's about the time frame that we're hoping to see these things accomplished. Is that, do you think that's right? I, I think that is right. I mean, one thing, I don't know if Kelly agrees with the way I say this, but the way I like to think about it is like, it. you, you should stop thinking of space as like an economic um, or, or, or like cultural enhancement choice and start thinking about it as like an aesthetic option for a very advanced civilization. Like at some point you can imagine may, maybe in a, a century or two where it's like, we, we were all surrounded by like ultra advanced robots so that they can just arrive on Mars ahead of you and set up this massive infrastructure. So it's basically Disneyland. And then you can just show up. That's it, at least from the perspective of the people going, that's a much safer way to do things. Or if you imagine a world of vast energy abundance, maybe we can have like plasma shields around earth or whatever space age thing that'll deflect asteroids that are going in the wrong direction or whatever it is. Um, but so, yeah, so, so we, we have something we call the, the wait and go big theory uh, or approach, which is, you know, if, if you're thinking about space settlement, we need to wait until a lot of this extra science is in. And then the reason we say go big is essentially because if you're going to do this, there are a lot of problems that are mitigated by scale. Uh, ecosystem development might be one of them, right? It might be easier per person to have a, a much larger ecosystem, but it also helps with things like psychiatric and medical care and, and, and providing economic opportunity. But he, I think what, I think what you're asking is that with growth, so you said it would be an aesthetic choice. Yes. I think you're saying with growth, it's going oh. to be inevitable and we're going to have to do it at some point. Yeah. And so yeah. I, I think- and not, not necessarily for population, like just like the, the size of our economy will require us using all the resources in the solar system. And um, it's just like, you just plot thing. it on an exponential yeah, I, I, growth, so, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I would, I would actually basically, I, I would. I don't want to get too in the weeds on this. I would somewhat dispute the premise because it's like, so the, the way we measure GDP, like you you can basically have infinite growth uh, w- without consuming more. You can look at like like the US economy, for example, like con- we consume way less carbon per person. You, you can, you know, I mean, I guess there's some eventual point at which you have to like, you've used every atom of utility in the universe or something. Um, but but you, you, can, you can expand wealth a lot without more stuff. So we were talking to a developmental economist about this. Um, and he pointed out, you know, there's a recent study from the World Bank, and I, I think I'll have the numbers right, which said, you know, if you, if you, you know, economists have ways of measuring total wealth of humanity, and the amount of wealth uh, that comes from natural resources is about two and a half percent of overall wealth, right? And and our, our sort of joke example is if you if you imagine the mineral wealth in an iPhone, it's almost nothing, but the thing costs six hundred bucks because what's really valuable is like ideas and the ability to shape matter into useful stuff. And by the way, that two and a half percent, about 90% of that, as I recall, is fossil fuels, which are obviously not applicable uh, off earth. Um, so I, I, I do think it's a more complex picture. I mean, I, I don't want to get too sci-fi about this, right? But you can imagine a world where we're all just in the matrix and GDP can just expand forever. I mean, if we want to get like, we want to talk about like two centuries hence, I don't know. Um, yeah, well, yeah. Well, this was in relation, there was a paper that I read where they were talking about sort of we should start thinking about what wilderness looks like in the solar system now and start to go like, what are the places, you know, if growth continues in the future as it has in the past, then what are, what are the places that we want to leave as pristine wilderness? Let's think about them today, like parts of Mars or all of Mars, you know, and then Kuiper Belt objects and asteroids, they can be crushed up, who cares? And let's prioritize things and think about that. And so I sort of think about that, that, that exponential growth has a way of catching up on you and sort of and and surprising you, and so we're we're saying, well, like today, all this stuff is impossible. But and the analogy that I always use is like living in Phoenix in the summertime, right? 
100 years ago, not a thing a lot of people wanted to do. But now we have infrastructure. We have we have highways, we have shopping malls, we have supermarkets, and we have air conditioners. And now a person can, in their right mind, spend a summer in Phoenix. <laughs> right. I hear it's miserable, but yes, yeah. I, they, yeah, they but you absolutely survive. And they right, might right. <laughs> yeah, people don't say you're crazy. They, right. you know, they look at you askance, they wonder, they understand that maybe you can't go somewhere cooler for the summertime, but but still it's a it's a survivable existence and and that's mars when we have that technology and infrastructure built up and so for me anyway it feels like not a question of if it's more like a matter of when and you're right like so maybe it is that that in fact the actual material use is is dramatically lower than the overall growth but still exponential growth maybe now you're adding an extra 100 years and yet it it shows up at that point and yeah, so, yeah. I, I don't think we disagree. I think we, 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 for this book, we, we try to stick very close. I don't think we try to predict anything past like a century because mm-hmm. we, we're really, because you basically can't. And, and so it's like, you know, it, it, it's, it's worth thinking about uh, the short term, but, but I don't know, with some of this stuff, you, you can get really speculative. And it's like, I don't know, in 100 years, maybe we have a compact fusion reactor and AI is everywhere and everything I'm saying seems quaint. But, but I do feel like now is a good time to start des- deciding, like, you know, what are the rules going to be yeah. for resource extraction and who gets to sell what and what areas do we not mine? Uh, and, you know, yeah. what areas do we want to forever preserve as parks uh, or scientific, you know, what scientific what areas are most scientifically interesting? We don't want to let any, you know, rovers go there or something until we know they can collect the right data. Um, now might be a good time to start thinking about that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And and I think it puts earth back into perspective as the best place in the universe. <laughs> and, you know, I, I look forward to your emails, aliens, but earth is the best. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and so I think that in the long term, like definitely in the short term, yeah, it makes more sense to just be efficient and recycle, but maybe in the long term, maybe these, the, what seem to be the, the ideas that you guys discounted now start to come online later. Totally. Mm-hmm. The, the way I, I like to think about that, though, is like, you know, we're talking about, you know, the, like what our species is like. And if you want that awesome future, you have to survive to it. And that's where we get nervous about the sort of rush to do all sorts of stuff as if it, there's like a short term need to have a plan B, which there isn't. You know, if you make it three centuries, then probably all sorts of opportunities that seem crazy now open up, but you have to make it. Um, and and so if, if these sort of urge to get to space instantly results in increased existential risk it's probably not worth it but but do you really think that there is an urge to get to space like that is that it's going to have any kind of impact on society i mean is isn't it because it's so difficult and reality is about is is shortly and regularly rearing its head how far are people going to really get in this i mean we just see a just a line of shattered space exploration companies, yes. right? Yeah, I, I think that our biggest near-term risk is not necessarily with settlements, but with resource extraction stuff. So, you know, the Outer Space Treaty is very unclear about what you're allowed to do in space. You can't claim sovereignty of the land, but maybe you can extract and sell resources. The U.S. definitely thinks so. Maybe other people disagree. And very small part of the moon is good. Very small part but of if the it's moon- a com- Right, but if it's a complete total money waste- then why does that matter? Ah, geopolitics uh, yes. and prestige. And so, for, you know, for we didn't go to the moon for, you know, <laughs> for the science. We didn't go to the moon because we want to eventually settle space. We went to the moon to destroy the Soviets. Yes. Uh, and so it's always been tied up with geopolitics. And so I guess I'm concerned there's going to be a bit of a scramble for land between China and the U.S. at some point because there's very small parts of the moon that are good. Mm-hmm. You want to be at the craters where the rims are good places to set up your solar panels. Uh, and inside the crater is one of the few places you can get uh, concentrated water. And I think, you know, the peaks of eternal light where you can put up your solar panels, it's something like one one hundredth of a billionth of the surface area. It's very small. One company, one country could easily take over the best spots. But but um, now you're sounding like one of the people that you're arguing against. Because that still sounds to me like you're saying, well, like you're going to the moon and you're setting up these collectors and you're harvesting this water mm-hmm. and it's question mark, question mark, question mark. Um, profit. Right. So, so here, here's the way. Yeah. You, so let me, let me like disambiguate. So there's two pieces here. One is we are saying there's nothing worth doing economically on the moon, science, whatever. Awesome. But like economically in the usual sense of making you richer or militarily more powerful, the stuff nations care about, there's nothing worth doing. 
And so, yeah, you could say, well, then why are you arguing about like, we should, we should stop this because if it's not going to happen, it's not going to happen. And our concern uh, is in the short term, you know, space, uh, if you look at the initial space race, right, there is no good reason to put a guy on the moon, right? Uh, you know, people at the time, uh, you know, Kennedy leaned into this, right? It's, it's new frontiers. Eisenhower at the time was like, this is crazy. This is obviously a waste of money. You're going to turn us into a garrison state. You're going to spend huge sums that could just like go to all sorts of other stuff. Um, but it was such a valuable PR move. And that became very clear after Sputnik, right? So the, famously, the morning after Sputnik, both, both Khrushchev and Eisenhower were shocked at how much people cared, right? This is stuff that had been planned for a long time. They thought it was just part of the advancement of science, but the world cared. And the media to this day overestimates the importance of humans in space for anything. Like there's a great book by Alex McDonald called The Long Space Age, you know, arguing that essentially what nations are doing is costly signaling. Like in the ecological sense, we are showing that we are wealthy, organized and can, you know, drop rockets anywhere we want. It's, it's, it's a way to show power. But the difference between a space race in the 60s and a space race now is that the race in the 60s was about doing a stunt. It was about going anywhere on the moon, having a guy put a boot down, and then coming home. A likely space race at some point in the future, which again is all about PR, not about resources, but is one that involves claiming probably small regions of the moon where it is possible to have like a semi-permanent uh, base like you have in, our, in Antarctica. So that, that's what Kelly was talking about when she talked about these mm -hmm, resources. Mm -hmm. like, yeah. 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 And I, and I understand, like, I get that. And I think that that obviously you don't want people claiming any part of the universe um, and and that we already have the Outer Space Treaty as a yeah. potential template for what that could look like. The Antarctica Treaty, I mean, we this issue has come up before. You can't just leave Earth, claim stuff, call it your own, and and that be okay with other people. And because all of your your interactions are still here on Earth, you you know you've got to account for that through your interactions. Like you can't be self-sufficient in space. Therefore, you can't just say, I'm taking my toys and I'm going home. You're stuck with us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and you're going to have to come back to the bargaining table. Yeah. So so it's like, hmm. Yeah, I, I guess that sort of, that covers it. I mean, I just, I sort of feel like, like right now, everyone is so hopeful and enthusiastic and really excited. And then as a real, reality dawns on us, we'll actually find out what are the issues that we're learning. Like mega constellations. Like these are a big problem and they're making money hand over fist. Yes. So now we've got a problem. Yes. For for space junk, for <laughs> for observatories. This is where the rubber is now going to have to hit the road. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how do we prioritize these versions of space exploration to the ones that are, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so, so our view is like in, in order to stop some kind of like turf fight, I mean, like so we we get into like legally why there are reasons to be worried about turf fights on the moon, even though you can't claim sovereignty. But you know, one way you could avoid that turf fight is just to internationalize and bureaucratize it, which which absolutely would make things less efficient and more boring and all that stuff that people hate. But like, would avoid a turf fight over what is again probably not an economically valuable thing to have. And and I wonder that that, that idea of like it being a PR stunt. Is there a way to come up with a treaty that allows people to do their signaling exactly in a way that makes their nations happy and yet minimizes the the downsides? Yes, yeah, so, uh, yeah. yeah. So one of our favorite stories. This is basically what's happening in Antarctica, right? So there, you know, if you go back to the forties, you could imagine there being some kind of fight over Antarctica, even though it's like not super useful. There were like counterclaims. We we have this story about like Nazis showing up. Uh, they wanted to start a country in Antarctica, you know, and the newsphobia. Yeah. So, so the, the deal that was come up with was essentially, you know, there are all these nations that even have overlapping claims and they basically agree to ignore that and allow people to do science. They don't lose their claims, but they can't make any new ones. And the only kind of signaling behavior that's gone on and it, which is just amazing is that both Argentina and Chile have sent women to their claim to have babies, presumably. So at some point in the future, they can be like, you see, we have always lived here in Antarctica, um, but that's about it, right? Nothing more scary than that. Well, the, but the science is the prestige. You, yeah. you set up big research stations, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's and I think that's it. It's the science is the prestige because the science is 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 delivering. Um, and it, like there's some speaking of these closed loop environments, they've got this um container in Antarctica where they're growing fresh fruit and vegetables and getting more complicated every season 
to figure out new ways to grow new things and provide fresh vegetables at larger and larger scale. And you can imagine they get to this point where they're supplying a vast majority of their local fresh food purely through this, through learning and iterating. And it just took them, you know, whatever, 20 years. And I think the European Space Agency is is leading this, which is great. Yeah, yeah. it's objectively yeah. awesome too. <laughs> I mean, you, you could imagine like, you know, someone's, the international community pays to set, to build a research station in the best, on the best part of the moon. And it's huge. And the way you show prestige is you have, you as a country have to be able to afford to rent out a segment and you can do the most awesome science there. And there can be, you know, there can be some way that we could all sort of work together, but still everybody could get the prestige, but maybe like in a facility that's jointly owned or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 I like, I think like for me, like, I absolutely see humans on the moon. I see a research station on the moon. Ideally, it's an international station with the, and that can kind of minimize the saber rattling and and virtue signaling. But um, and then something on Mars and maybe something on an asteroid or two, just because that would be cool too. And then they're permanently habited. And you, like right now, every time I see the International Space Station go by, I'm like, "There's people up there." Because space is awesome. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah, it always comes back to that. One, one of our favorite, yeah. like the, the coolest thing to me is like if you get people in those lava tubes on the moon, like how awesome are these massive caves, you know? That would be cool. No one's ever been down there. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 then now you're kind of like, oh, but now I want like people to live there and see that. And then you just get sucked back into it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Cause, cause, oh, yeah. The, I mean, the awesome. fantasy is a great fantasy, you yeah. know? Uh, but it just it's just not going to do all the like – pragmatic stuff you want it to do yeah. but but whatever it's cool science so i think you guys are having a big impact i've noticed a serious change in the tone of the comments on a lot of the videos that i do and and i'm seeing a lot of you guys are deluded this space stuff is never <laughs> gonna work people are never gonna live on mars i'm like oh, oh someone read zach and kelly's book oh, we want people to be nice yeah, to each other like, and optimistic oh it's youtube and- come on it's youtube comments what can okay, you okay, yeah all right, right fair enough yeah, yeah we that's, can't control yeah, that's yeah. nice for youtube yeah yeah <laughs> except the rest of my youtube audience you're all wonderful um <laughs> and so polite to me all the time thank you um all right so zach and kelly what are you guys obsessed with right now individually Ooh. no Communication first. Parasites. Yeah. Oh, that's your job. Yeah, you that's my job. I'm a parasitologist. Okay, well, so um, fine. I, so in parasites, what are you obsessed with right now? I am obsessed with thinking about uh, whether or not we should be concerned with their conservation. How, how do the conservation arguments that we use for things like tigers, how do they apply to, do they apply at all to things like tapeworms? Uh, and just sort of thinking through that. So you'll love this. So, so I, I live on Vancouver Island and we have a creek called Morrison Creek. And that creek is the only place for the Morrison lamprey. And oh. it is a protected parasite. Nice. nice. And, it, and there's little pictures of it. And, and, you know, kids go and learn about the Morrison lamprey. And they have little animated version, you know, little drawn versions of it. So, so I, it's, it's already started. Nice. Oh, that's great. It warms my heart. I'll say if you go to our, our conferences, there'd be a fight about whether or not that's a parasite or a micro predator. Uh-oh. We don't need to get into it. <laughs> sure. Human definitions are a pain in the rear end. But anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. fine, I'm fine. About- okay, fine. Yeah, uh, I'm returning to parasitology. It's clearly that's what a micro predator. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I think it's all interesting. I don't care. <laughs> Zach. All right. What are you obsessed with? I am. Um- so I had a, another book come out in 2023, which was a kid's version of Beowulf. Uh, called Beowulf, and it did pretty well. And so I'm, I'm working on a sequel. And so for me, as a certain type of nerd, that involves reading a lot of like the old English corpus. Not that I speak old English, I have to read it in translation. But um, so I'm reading a lot of like weird, uh, you know, 5th through 11th century uh, literature. Uh, and uh, and that's that's what I'm into. Can, can you read it like... Can you understand the English, or do you oh, have to? No, no, no. You, you, you know. So, uh, yeah, right. When you say old English, people think Shakespeare. Shakespeare's modern English, um, or you could call it early modern English. I forget, but like you know, or if you ever had to read Chaucer and you're like, this is getting a little hard. That's like Middle English. Old English is like closer to German. Uh, so you mm. can you can pick out words like the word for chicken is chicken, uh, but like um, you can't read. It's also it's like it's like like reading English only English with German grammar. So it's got all those like. Um, conjugation rules and complicated stuff. So it's no, you, you can't just pick it out. You can't even kind of like, it's much easier to read French as an English speaker than it is to read old English. Oh, that's interesting. And, and I don't know, can you use it? Is there like a Duolingo? 
I wish I would kill for a Duolingo Old English. No, I mean, so God, it's like an English department thing. I mean, there's, there are kind of resources, but like there's like English department hazing, like sit down with a glossary and Beowulf. That's how you'll become a man. Um, and, and, and so no, there's, and you're you, looking up each word and then going, okay, is this in the past pejorative tense? Exactly. Oh my God. Yeah. It's, it's that kind of thing. It's, I mean, yeah. there are like slightly better resources, but no, I mean, it's like, yeah, if you want to learn like French or Chinese or German, everyone is just like handing you the resources, but like yeah. old English, it's like, it's, there's like three weirdos, um, who are here to, to watch you struggle. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's fascinating. So do you have a copy of the book? You can hold it up. Oh, yeah. I yeah, do. all right. There we go. Ooh, what a cover. A city Ooh. on Mars. Can wow. we settle space? Should we settle space? And have we really thought this through? And hopefully having this conversation, you understand our position on it. Um, <laughs> thanks, guys. Super fun. And I look forward to uh, future feedback from YouTube commenters showing me that, <laughs> yes, indeed, you are going viral. Okay, oh, good. Thank good. you so much. This was a lot of fun. All right. Thanks, guys. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Zach and Kelly Wintersmith. Again, their book is called The City on Mars. It's fantastic. So detailed, so much information, so many numbers, so many references that you can follow up as much as you want. And I think it'll be like the beginning of a pretty deep rabbit hole that you can just follow. Now, I'm going to talk some more about my thoughts on this. But first, I'd like to thank our patrons. Thanks to Abe Kingston, Hey Twilight, Dougie Stewart, Stephen Krasaki, David Richards, Mark Ansis, Joel Yancey, Antonio Lofilara, Dustin Cable, Vlad Chiplin, Modso, George, David Gilton, Andrew Gross, Jeremy Mattern, Josh Schultz, and Jordan Young, who support us at the Master of the Universe level, and all of our other supporters on Patreon. When I first started Universe Today, it was inspired by The Case for Mars, written by Robert Zubrin. I was also reading Pale Blue Dot by Carl Sagan, where he talks about the future of humanity in space. And it just resonated with me so deeply. And I had been watching Star Trek and I'd been watching other science fiction shows. And so it all came together. And I'm like, yes, humanity's future is in space. And over the years, as I've done this job more and more, I've started to realize that space is a lot harder than we thought. That every single new thing that we try to do in space only comes after tons of prototyping and testing. Failures happen all the time. We've seen deaths on two separate space shuttle missions. And the future of human space exploration will probably follow along that course. It's not going to be just this really straightforward path to having humans on other worlds. And back in the era of exploration, we had these reasons that there was money to be made. There was Thing, there was reasons to go to other places. And right now, there just is no benefit to living off of Earth. And Zach and Kelly do a wonderful job of debunking everything you think why humans are going to want to live in space. And the reason you're left with is because it's cool. And I think that's a great reason. It is cool. And so then don't worry about all of the other benefits, all of the reasons, the rationale, justifications. We go to space because it's cool, and we'll keep doing it as long as it remains cool. And I think that's a perfectly acceptable, exciting future of human space exploration, us doing cool things forever. All right, we'll see you next time.